thank you for that kind introduction and thank you for welcoming me back. It's good to be here this morning and I'm really excited to be here and I am excited particularly because in the next two days we will all have had an opportunity to do something that my great-great-great-grandfather prayed that he would be able to do many years ago. So in the year 1867, in the 4th District of Montgomery County in Virginia, my great-great-great-grandfather and his son, my great-great-grandfather, both of whom were newly emancipated slaves, showed up at the voting, the voting polls and they voted for the first time ever. And it was the first election open to African Americans in this country. And so this is a big deal to me because when I think about the legacy that I've inherited, that includes advocacy, activism, and community service that's embedded within seven generations of my genealogical roots. I'm thankful to be able to exercise my right to vote freely without encumbrance and without suppression. And I really pray that each of us over the coming days will exercise this wonderful freedom that so many brave souls died and sacrificed their lives to make sure would be a sustainable freedom for us. Now, I, I often make references to my ancestors because I've been fascinated with genealogy for a long time. And I discovered at the tender age of 14, when I read Alex Haley's book, Roots, the story of an American family, that I loved the power of generational stories. And over the course of my life, I've come to understand that we are all impacted by our ancestry. We're impacted by our environment, and we're impacted by our life experiences. And as Christ followers, we receive an infusion of new spiritual DNA coursing through our veins, but yet who we are at the core of our beings and at the root of our hearts requires regular maintenance through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of you who prefer a sermon title, Today's message this morning is entitled, Roots, Reparations, and Reconciliation. Now, over the last several months, my husband, Ben, and I have had a few trees on our property removed, five trees to be exact, and only one of the trees was diseased, but the other trees became hazardous because of their risk of falling over due to weakened conditions from severe storms that we had over the last year. And the trees were removed because their structures had been compromised, either by a bad root system or a weakened condition through atmospheric and environmental changes. And while the trees were removed, none of them were uprooted. The roots remained underground. And we were cautioned by our tree removal company not to try to plant other trees in their place because the root systems were still embedded. Now, unless you completely remove the root systems, you may have these aggressive sprouts which begin to appear years later. And these unwanted sprouts from a diseased root system can negatively impact neighboring trees of a similar species. Well, that works true in our lives, doesn't it? If we have a negative root system embedded within our hearts, then that negative root system can negatively impact our neighbors. And the converse is true. A positive root system can positively impact our neighbors. 
Well, the Lord was showing me that my spiritual growth can be hindered by the negative root systems embedded within my heart that I've not dealt with and those things which continue to spread underneath the surface. My heart can also be weakened by the environmental and atmospheric challenges that I, I've endured over time. And these things can wreak havoc and create areas of spiritual and emotional compromise within me. And the negative root system in my heart can therefore impact my neighbor's heart. You see, any attempts by me to adorn myself with a righteous outward appearance is nullified by my unwillingness to deal with the stuff underneath the surface. And I'm talking about the condition of my heart which requires even more attention than my outward acts of righteousness that others can see. I'm reminded of the scripture in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 26, and it reads, this is Jesus speaking, he says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? You are hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. In Matthew 23, we see that Jesus uses the analogy of cleaning the inside of the cup first before addressing the outside dirt. He was speaking to the religious leaders, emphasizing the importance of experiencing internal reconciliation between who we actually are on the inside and who we portray ourselves to be outwardly. Jesus called these religious folks hypocrites and blind teachers because he saw firsthand the amount of injustice, the amount of abuse, and the mishandling of their religious influence on the people. Jesus was incensed by the hypocrisy that he saw taking place in the church. And I believe he continues to challenge us today to closely examine ourselves and what lies in the root systems of our hearts. Now this reminder of the need for my interior life to be in alignment with my exterior self was further illustrated for me several weeks ago when my husband Ben and I were pulling weeds from our backyard. And I, I, I need you to know I am not an outdoors, salt of the earth, working in the yard kind of person and I don't have a green thumb and I didn't grow up working in the yard or growing flowers or anything. Nevertheless, because it was a necessary chore to pull these weeds, I needed to be out there pulling weeds. So I reluctantly participated, but not first, without silently complaining to God that I needed to be doing some more cerebral work. Things like preparing a sermon or reading a book or studying the word, anything but pulling weeds. And so our yard is zero-scaped as a low-maintenance efficiency. We have rocks outlining the pathway behind our home. And despite the presence of rocks and the elimination of all grass, the weeds continue to grow up through the rocks. Lesson number one for me in this less-than-cerebral exercise was that God's love can penetrate the hardened exterior of my heart. And he can allow growth to occur in me if my heart remains pliable in his hands. But I also have to guard what I allow into 
my heart. Well, as I continued the weed pulling, I was making really good progress and kind of proud of myself because some of the weeds came up with the roots still attached and I saw this as a serious win until I got to weeds which would not come up out of the ground no matter how hard I pulled on them. Well, not to be outdone by a weed sticking out of the ground, I found myself pulling and tugging and huffing and puffing only to be informed by my husband who has a green thumb those aren't weeds, those are trees. And they won't come up by you pulling on them. They require a different method of extraction. Well, I was dumbfounded because to me, all these weeds looked the same and they were all in the same location and there was nothing outwardly visible to indicate that they were trees except their resistance to being pulled up from the ground. Lesson number two for me in this less than cerebral exercise was that I cannot rely upon the same methods to address similar situations in my life, no matter how familiar they may seem to me. Some weeds, like some sins, some challenges, some obstacles, such as the embedded bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart, will be stubborn and can only be overcome and plucked up by using different means or a different approach. I'm reminded of the passage in Matthew 17, 21, and this is a story where Jesus was explaining to his disciples why a young boy who had seizures had not been healed by the disciples' prayer efforts. He was telling them that a different approach involving faith-filled prayer and fasting was needed to address the condition. Sometimes you have to use a different methodology to dismantle or remove an old, familiar system. And if we're looking for God to do a new thing in our lives, we have to be willing to embrace a new mindset. Well, as I finished pulling the weeds, I thought about the root system and how deep and wide sin can be buried in my heart. And I began to draw the analogy to some of the systems we have in place in our society and in our world which must grieve God's heart. And yet these systems don't feel like systems at all. But they seem like natural rhythms of life that we've all become accustomed to. We've become lulled into a sense of self-righteousness by disregarding the true condition of our hearts telling ourselves that we're really okay when maybe we're not. And what's inside of our hearts informs the value that we place on others. And the others in our society are those who are not like us. They don't look like us. They don't behave like us. They don't think like us. They don't love like us or believe like us or have backgrounds and experiences like ours. Their ways seem foreign to us, and so we classify them either outwardly or inwardly as others. Now, some of these others are people who live on the fringes of society. They are marginalized by virtue of their specific status. The scriptures categorizes marginalized people as those who are diseased, those who are blind, those who are poor, the enslaved, the captive, the widows, the children, women, people of ethnicity, and those who are mentally ill. 
throughout the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, and we're going to look at chapters 58 and 61 in a moment. But throughout Isaiah, we see a disenfranchised group of people coming out of slavery, and they would become the ones who would experience God's restoration motivated by God's heart for justice. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the coming Messiah and the mission of reparations and restoration to which he would be called. Now when we hear the word reparations, we often think of the political and historical context in which the word is used. Reparations refers to an acknowledgement of wrong and restitution for wrongs done to certain ethnic groups, such as the indigenous Native nations, Japanese Americans, our Jewish brothers and sisters, and African Americans, just to name a few. Now this contextual meaning of the word reparations is historically accurate, but it can elicit a visceral response in some of our hearts because it serves as a reminder of the atrocities which occurred to certain ethnic groups in the more painful part of our American history. But for purposes this morning, our purposes this morning, it's going to be important for us to remember and understand that the word reparations has biblical significance and meaning. It derives from the Jewish law of Jubilee, which was celebrated before and after the period of exile, every seven years at first, and then observed every 50 years after the Babylonian exile. And if you want to look at this, I refer you to the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, verses 8 through 12. And you can look at that a little later on. But here are the purposes of the law of Jubilee. Jubilee was designed to bring liberation and restorative justice to those who were oppressed and who were divested of their land, divested of their property, and their personhood under the evil system of slavery. Jubilee ensured that generational wealth would be restored to disenfranchised families coming out of slavery, and it was meant to be a sustainable solution to eliminate poverty and to implement economic equity. Now, the ancient concept of reparations, this is not a new thing, this is an ancient concept, is a major component of the law of Jubilee, and it's woven throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Reparations is defined as the making of amends for a wrong done by paying money to or otherwise helping those who have been wronged or injured. It is essentially the repairing of something broken. The concept of reparations acknowledges that injustice exists and there is a willingness to pay the cost, the pricely cost, or the costly price necessary to bring restorative justice and true reconciliation. Now when we think about reparations in the concept of Jubilee, people coming out of slavery were given resources to go into their new lives of emancipation with. They were not allowed to leave slavery empty-handed. In Isaiah chapter 58, 
There is a prophetic proclamation for true worship, not just to be a gathering of people on Sunday, but to consist of providing for the hungry and the homeless, clothing the naked, caring for the marginalized, and the breaking of chains of oppression by loving the others in community with care and provision. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about the brokenness in people created by the devastation that occurred through the Babylonian captivity of Judah. And this happened in 586 BCE. But while this occurred over 2,500 years ago, the similarities in the needs of marginalized and broken people even today cannot be denied. Now before I go any further, I want to acknowledge you, members of Pulpit Rock Church. I am aware of your generosity in helping others in their time of need. In fact, we just heard that your church won an award, the 2020 Care Portal Church of the Year Award, out of 2,300 churches nationwide, for your service and your financial giving to the pressing needs of over 1,500 children in our local community. You also faithfully give to struggling communities overseas. So what you've essentially done is modeled what true worship looks like from God's perspective. Kudos to you, Pulpit Rock Church. And as a result of these demonstrations of true worship, which consists of providing services and care for one another, Isaiah 58 verse 12 says it this way. It says, those from among you, the true worshipers, will build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Clearly, we see a correlation between true worship and the resulting community revitalization. But the reparations we are to engage in require a repairing of our hearts First, in order for generations to be healed, for lives to be restored, and communities to be transformed. We cannot talk about restoration and reconciliation without including reparations. Now we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 4, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Starting at verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. This is Jubilee. And with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. And to all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. This is the reparative exchange that God is going to give. And in their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord himself has planted for his own glory. And there's that root system again. And they will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago, 
And in the New King James Version, verse 4 reads, They shall raise up the former desolations, and they will repair the desolations of many generations, and they will revive these destroyed cities, though they have been deserted for many generations. So in this passage, we see the prophetic announcement regarding the good news of salvation and the intentional restoration and reparations given to the marginalized. We also see that after receiving their healing and restoration from God, it is the marginalized and the broken, the least likely people who will do the rebuilding, who will do the raising up, and the making of repairs to those places and to those people whose lives were destroyed by slavery. Now, why is it going to happen this way? Because those who are broken and needy and marginalized have a view of life from the bottom up and can readily determine what needs fixing. Much better than those who have a perspective of privilege and have no concept of a life of suffering. Notice that the passage in Isaiah 61 talks about former desolations and the desolations of many generations. Well, the devastations of past generations continue to haunt our nation and the entire human family. Racism continues to leave generational scars. And issues of poverty and food insecurity as well as issues of housing, immigration, and gender inequities continue to plague our world. And yet the word of the Lord shows us that God will use the oppressed who have been transformed and restored to lead the repairs of broken systems in our fragmented society. Now before we start imagining all of the homeless people and the down and outers of, of the community coming along to effectuate change, let's remember something. Let's take a step back. We have all been in one or more of these categories of brokenness at least once in our lives. Think about it. Even if we have never experienced poverty on a personal level, we may have experienced what it's like to have a broken heart. Even if we've never been in a physical prison and we don't know a life of incarceration personally, we've been held captive by different things that have had a hold on us spiritually, emotionally, physically, and financially. We've likely experienced grief and loss and spiritual heaviness and depression and anxiety. And so not one of us escapes the obligation to become a repairer and to bring reparations and reconciliation to a fractured society. Not one of us escapes this. It is our job as broken, Holy Spirit-infused people to bring the good news of Jubilee to our nation, to our land. I want you to notice that this scripture from Isaiah 61 is also referenced, is cross-referenced in the New Testament in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And from the New International Version, it reads as follows. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. 
Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Jubilee again. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, Jesus continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a se severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Is anyone else disturbed by this story? We see Jesus returning to the synagogue of his hometown, the church where he grew up, and it's early in his ministry. And he read from the book of the prophet Isaiah and declared that portions of Isaiah 61 were his mission statement. He boldly told the congregation that the prophetic words of Isaiah were being fulfilled right in front of them. Jesus was saying that the time had arrived for the poor to finally hear some good news, for the oppressed to get from underneath the oppressor, for the brokenhearted to experience healing, and for the blind to see, and for the mourners to be comforted. He was essentially telling the congregation that the day of Jubilee had arrived. He basically said, I've got some good news for you. Jubilee is here. But I've also got some bad news for you. Because there's going to have to be some changes that take place in society in, in the form of reparations in order for Jubilee to happen. Jesus was letting the congregation know that God was visiting his people through Jesus who would liberate the enslaved and restore what oppression had stolen from everyone. Now, at first, the church members were amazed at the oratory skills of Jesus, and they were glad to hear the good news of Jubilee. Then they became outraged when Jesus revealed why he would not be performing miracles in his hometown of Nazareth. Jesus exposed the conditions of their narrow-minded and prejudiced hearts by informing the congregation that those whom society declared as second-class citizens would now also become a priority and be included in the family of God. 
Jesus referred to the miracles of the prophets Elijah and Elisha to demonstrate that miracles were done in non-Jewish settings and that God chose the unchosen others to be the recipients of miracles because of their obedience. This enraged the congregation because these miracles occurred to people who were unbelievers and those who didn't worship Yahweh, the one true God. The widow of Zarephath was a Gentile, and she was the poorest of the poor. And Naaman, the leper, was a Syrian who himself had owned Jewish slaves. And he was a member of the oppressive ruling class back in the day. And yet God still healed him despite his abuse of power and his privilege. The folks in the synagogue wanted the sensational aspects of Jesus' ministry. They wanted the miracles but they didn't want the transformational requirements that were rooted in the gospel. After all, Jesus was a hometown boy who should have performed miracles at home first before going to other ethnic groups in other cities. The church members chased Jesus out of the church and became murderous towards the truth which Jesus spoke. Because to embrace this truth of inclusion and the requirement to extend reparations of jubilee to non-Jews, well, this would disrupt their entire belief system and undermine their privileged status as God's chosen. And so it was easier to try to kill Jesus than to experience a true heart transformation. And even today, we sometimes want to chase Jesus out of the church when we oppose any prophetic message which exposes the diseased root systems in our hearts because we consider the message disruptive and countercultural to everything we've come to believe about ourselves, about the Word of God, and maybe about God Himself. And here we are, eight months into this global pandemic. And it has become painfully obvious that we are living in a world with increasing civil unrest, ongoing systemic injustice, religious animosity, and increasing hatred. And it is sad to say that even within our own Christian community, we have discarded civility and embrace dissension and division as a new way of demonstrating our Christianity. This must grieve the heart of God, and it should grieve our hearts as well. God is committed to the restoration and reconciliation of all of humanity. He doesn't want anyone to perish and be eternally separated from him. God knew that reparations were needed to right every wrong, to conquer evil, and to bring justice and mercy to a dying world. Thank God he did not use the excuse that he should not be held responsible to make reparations for systems he did not create or had no part in. But God nevertheless took responsibility to repair something he did not break. He paid a debt he did not owe because to God, restoration of humanity's relationship to him was of utmost importance. And he was willing to pay the hefty price 
for reconciliation. In John 3.16, we're reminded that God loved the world so much that he gave Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice who was willing to use his life as the reparation in order to reconcile creation back to God the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.18-20, through 20, paraphrased, reads as follows. It says it this way. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's a ministry. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And if we are reconciled to God through the work of the cross, then we must pursue reconciliation with each other. This is a priority of God as well as a mandate from God. True reconciliation includes making repairs to the diseased root systems within our hearts and also making repairs to the long-standing diseased root systems within our society. The implementation of reparations acknowledges the injustices that have been done and then seeks to make things right and equitable through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, we cannot continue to see broken people and not offer them healing. We cannot continue to fracture and divide our communities and not fix them. We cannot continue to unduly enslave people and not bring freedom, to steal and not repay, and we cannot continue to hate and not replace it with love. We are called by his name to be repairers of the breach and restorers of community. Brothers and sisters, may we endeavor by the power of the Holy Spirit to live accordingly. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to our hearts today. We acknowledge that you have called us, Lord, to examine the root systems of our hearts first before we can heal relationships and repair our communities. Allow us, Lord, to hear your voice in our ears in the days to come as we endeavor to serve as repairers, as restorers, and as reconcilers. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.